everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Luke Canis, founder of Puppet and Clickety, and advisor to numerous startups. Uh, Luke's interests include the future of work, redistribution, decentralization, worker dignity, and automation and power tools. Today, we're talking with Luke about turning ideas into startups. But before we get into that, Luke, uh, welcome to the show. And how did I do on the last name? Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You, you came pretty close. It's it's Kinesis. It's the stress on the last syllable, and it's uh, surprisingly hard to get right. It is. I really thought I had that. Well, sorry <laughs> to you and sorry to the audience. I don't want to get us started on the wrong foot. But let's get into the interview here. Uh, let's learn a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in this business. I got started as an entrepreneur the way many people do. Um, I ran out of other things to do. Um, I'm not very employable. I had seven jobs in two and a half years at the end of college and was fired but from a surprisingly large number of them. Um, I also I essentially don't like doing the same thing for very long. And so spent seven years as a sysadmin. And it was kind of like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way to get out of this. And at some point it was like, I could build the software that I always wanted as a sysadmin. And hopefully that would make it. So I was no longer a sysadmin. So I, uh, I built Puppet and that ended up being a 12 year journey. I bootstrapped it for four and a half years. And then an, uh, an investor tracked me down at an event. And from there, uh, invested in 2009. And between 2009 and 2014, we ended up raising $87 million in five rounds of capital. And then I got retired from there in 2016. And I've been kind of spent a couple of years kicking around and figuring out what to do next. And then right about two years ago, decided to commit full time to Clickety. After having spent three years without a job, it was a little hard. You know, the decision to go full time maybe was a little separated from me actually working full time. But, you know, it was still a commitment. And we raised a small round uh, at the end of 2019 and have been working full time since then. A quick follow up. What did you study in college before you got into software? I have a degree in chemistry. I was 100% convinced when I got to college that I was going to go on to be a lab scientist. And I went to Reed College here in Portland, Oregon. And Reed does a really good job of teaching you what the life of a scientist is going to be like. And quite ironically, the career of a scientist can't actually tolerate very much failure. There's so little funding available relative to the number of people who want to be professional scientists that the ones who experience any failure just get, get sloughed out pretty quickly. And I am pretty com I was pretty confident that I was not one of those people who was going to excel really quickly. I think I would be a good scientist, but I think it would be a roundabout path. It would be a, a more circuitous path than most people would experience. And so I you know, was like, well, I'll go find something else to do. And so pretty quickly moved into technology instead. Yeah. Chemistry was always the thing that was like my kryptonite uh, in high school. And I think in college, I had to take one class. So uh, kudos to you. I, I know how tough that is. Tell us about Clickety and uh, you know why you started the company. In a lot of ways, Clickety is exactly what I did at Puppet. I'm building the software that I wanted in my previous job. At Puppet, I had a job as a sysadmin and I wanted this automation software that would help me manage the large number of stupid computers I was responsible for. At Puppet, I ran a 500-person company, and I uh, most people who are executives get there because they have a natural talent with people. Um, I cheated my way into the into the executive office. I do not have a natural talent with people. I have whatever the opposite of that is. And so, what I really wanted was a tool that could help me do the work that I did around people. 
this is a little hard to talk about because most of us aren't used to thinking about the work as people work. We're not used to thinking about the things that that managers and leaders do in an operational way, in a mechanical way. Um, but essentially, like, you know, there, there are all kinds of projects I did that inv- that roughly looked like go talk to 50 people. You think about fundraising. What is fundraising? I don't know. Go talk to 100 people and ask them for money. Have an event. Go talk to 200 people and present it. You know, find people who can be speakers. Go talk to 200 people and ask them to be a speaker at this event. So a lot of things look like that. Or, uh, you know, again, I had 500 employees in five offices around the world. I've got 50 people who work in Belfast and 50 people work in, who work in London. Am I talking to the people who work in those cities often enough? Am I meeting them often enough? I've got 25 directors at the company somewhere. When's the last time I talked to each director? Do I have a, a personal relationship with each of them? These are all things that are, in, in some sense, straightforward. None of them are technically difficult. But when you take not just one of them, but the collection of them as a job, it was just, it was too much. It was like, look, I'm, I'm getting the most important one third of this done, but I'm not getting the other two thirds of my job done. And I just constantly felt like I, I was not succeeding in my work. Um, and, you know, of course, like the work that I'm doing at Clickety is really, really unrelated to the work we did at Puppet. And so it didn't make sense to try to build that within Puppet. But once I found myself outside of Puppet, it's like, well, you know, I, I guess I need to get some kind of job. And it didn't look, didn't seem to make sense to go on to become an investor or something. And so this is something I've been thinking about for more than a decade. And so I'm pretty happy to be given the opportunity to go build the product that I've been wanting forever. All right. I'd like to talk about problems and ideas. In front of me, I have this quote from Anna Karenina, and that is that all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I'd like you to try and use that as a metaphor. Do you think that the very best startup ideas tend to have lots in common? No, I actually don't believe in startup ideas. Not generally anyway. I'm I'm very much a market first person. I'm a problem first person. I think the best idea in the world without a great problem to address, to attack with that idea is pretty worthless. And there, there are lots of examples of, I mean, <laughs> like my favorite example is post-it notes, right? Like there was a thing that needed to be invented for post-it notes to work. And what is that thing? Crappy glue, right? Like what made post-it notes work? Glue that doesn't glue things together very well. And, you know, if you were to go to your boss and say, I've got this amazing idea, it's a glue that doesn't work very well, <laughs> right? That doesn't work. But the problem that the glue solves is not really actually about glue. It's about, I want to be able to put attached paper to anything. Well, you know, that leads you in a completely different direction. And one of the things you have to solve to do that, of course, is have the glue not tear everything when you go to take it off again. Um, and so for that, you need glue that doesn't work very well. But again, like <laughs> the idea of glue that doesn't work very well is uh, is not a good idea. It's only when attached to a problem or a market or something like that that it becomes a good idea. And so, and in that way, honestly, frankly, there are so many different ways to succeed as a company. And, and frankly, there are different ways to talk about different ways of succeeding. A good example is companies that have sales versus companies that don't. I love talking about Atlassian, for example. Atlassian was in, in Australia and they couldn't build their company. Most of their customers were in the US in the beginning. They couldn't build their company the way that everyone else built their company, right? They couldn't come and visit your office. In fact, it was because of time differences that they didn't even really want to be on the phone with you because that was complicated to manage. It was much easier to find a way. It's like, look, if I can make it so you you don't need to ask me for help, by having good enough documentation, by having good enough workflows and things like that, by having an easy enough to use product, then that makes my life a ton easier. So that's an example of, of a company that succeeded really, really differently. Um, you know, there are plenty of other examples too. You look at uh, Basecamp, who very happily is like, look, most of our customers are, many of our customers are going to outgrow us. And we'd rather lose customers who are no longer a fit for us 
then shift who we are as a company and go upscale and compare that to Dropbox and say, you know, Dropbox is like, look, we started a consumer, but we've found to continue growing our revenue. We want to be a company that sells to enterprises instead. So they're shifting their whole business to being business focused and eventually enterprise focused. Is one of these companies wrong? You know, like, no, I'd say, you know, most of the world uses sales. Does that mean it lasting was wrong not to use sales? I, I certainly wouldn't say so. I know which one, which company I'd, ra- I'd rather have. So I definitely don't believe that success only happens not even one way, but not even a limited number of ways. And if anything, as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking for what's the new way you can succeed and and kind of having a business that is a mix of innovation in some parts of the business. You know, you don't want to have too much innovation because it's too much risk, but also having no no innovation, no go-to-market innovation especially is uh, is dangerous too. Why do so many founders build things that nobody ends up really wanting? That's pretty easy. I mean, frankly, it's just hard, right? And and I, I would I would guess that ninety nine percent of the time, everything that ninety nine percent of the things that founders build, somebody does want. And the challenge is usually not, you know, I would certainly fight the like nobody wants because at the very least, probably the founder wants the thing that they're building. I think in the majority of cases, there's a there's a disconnect in the product somewhere. And the disconnect is some combination of people want it, but not that price. People want a thing that looks like what you're building, but not exactly the thing that you're building. There are people out there who want the thing that you're building at the price that you're selling it, but you can't get in front of them, right? You can't, you can't, you can't tell them that your product exists, right? There's no way to reach them. Most of these are market problems, right? And then again, this is one of the reasons why I'm a market first entrepreneur. Most of these are disconnects between the product you've built and the market you're trying to sell it to. You know, classic examples are uh, you look at the, the early Macintosh. You know, the Macintosh in today's dollars costs something like ten or twelve thousand dollars, and it doesn't matter how easy to use your product is if it's three times as expensive as the competitive products. It, it's just not going to work, not in that era anyway, right? There are cases where you can convince people to buy something that's three times as much, but there aren't a ton of them. And so that's an example of it was a clearly superior product that was just never going to win for cost reasons. Now, what would the world look like today if the Macintosh had come in at, you know, one third the cost if the Macintosh had somehow been cheaper than the PC? You know, I don't know what it would look like, but I bet it'd be very, very different. So there's a market disconnect there. I, I think that's a huge portion of the problems the, the not just the pricing, but also like go to market is another example. I talked about companies who have sales versus don't have sales. So in many cases, the product you want to sell can't be sold the way that you want to sell it. I really want to use sales. Okay, well, that doesn't work. You have to be a marketing for sale for that product, for that market. Or I really don't want to use sales. Well, the people you're selling to really need to be sold to. They, they aren't going to do it on their own. They aren't going to you know lead themselves down an onboarding experience. Lots of those things are problematic. And, and the vast majority of founders I talk to, their brains need to be fixed on the go-to-market side and much less commonly on the product side. Do you think you should choose to build something that a large number of people want a small amount, or do you think you should choose to build something that a small number of people really, really want? I think the majority of Booleans are wrong and, and that it's it's generally not a useful, you know, I, I usually fight back against them. And so in this case, I would say my preference is actually to build power law products, products that can be, can solve the majority of problems for most people and can be used to solve, you know, can can be used to solve almost any problem. So it can it can scale to very very complex problems, but it's also accessible enough that nearly anyone can use it to solve their problems. Like the by far the most, the, the best example of this is Excel, Microsoft Excel. Almost everyone will use Excel at some point in their lives, and maybe they don't use Excel, but they'll use some derivative of Excel, some copy of it, like uh, like Apple Numbers. 
And yet there are also literally trillions and trillions of dollars rolls through Excel spreadsheets every year. And, and some of that is just like really simple stuff, but a lot of that is incredibly sophisticated stuff. Things that would take programmers years to reproduce are being done in spreadsheets run out of finance departments all over the world. And so that's an example of a product that if all you want to do is represent some data in tables, Excel is super easy to do that. And it really is easy, right? Anybody could get in there and figure it out. But also if you'd like to run incredibly sophisticated algorithms, you can do that in Excel too. I was talking to an accountant yesterday and she's like, you know, sorry, I don't have this done yet. I, c I couldn't get the calculus to work quite the way I wanted it to in the spreadsheet today. And you're like, you know, that's, I would never use Excel to do, to do calculus, but she apparently does it on a regular basis. So, so that's really what I would push for is find, find a way to build your product so that the people with the biggest needs, the people who are going to be most willing to pay for it, the people who would have the hardest time living without it can get value from your product, but also find a way to make it accessible for the easy early problems that cause people to become excited and people can very quickly experience success. And usually those are kind of different people, different problems, and it's all, it's part of a journey as opposed to just this one-time experience. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to founders. Do you think like would-be founders should apply time constraints uh, when it comes to like coming up with their startup idea or do you think, you know, indefinite amount of time is best? It, it just depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if your goal is to make a billion dollars in 10 years, then you better have some time constraints. I, I, I personally don't like money-oriented goals. I think, you know, getting rich, being able to sell your company, going public, I think very rarely are those going to lead you to the right places. There are plenty of counterexamples. Um, if you ask the market, you know, plenty of people are motivated by getting rich and they've done quite well. It's just not what I'm interested in. It tends not to be the kinds of founders that I'm interested in working with. I, there are pro some problems that just take a long time. You know, the problems that I spend my time on, often I've thought about them for five years or 10 years. And, you know, Puppet, I had worked on what led to Puppet for you know, seven or eight years before I built the product, maybe not seven years, four or five years. And I'd built two or three prototypes and other, and other systems. Um, I'd used every other system in the world that existed to do that. I went and worked at a company that was building a competitor to it um, before I went and built my own thing. So at Puppet, I worked hard not to build that product. And it was only when it was like, well, I guess there's something else. No one else is going to build this. I suppose I don't have a choice. And then with Clickety, I did the same thing. I mean, I spent years at, at, at Puppet trying to find a solution that I could just use and then asking everybody else, how do you solve this problem? Can I, can I just copy you? Can I do what you're doing? And very often the answer was, there is no solution. I don't have a solution. There is nothing I am doing. I, I, I'm suffering and I hate this. If you solve it, let me know. It was what I got from most people. So, you know, and then even when you're starting, in many cases, you don't know what the answer is, right? It's a, it's a process of discovery and some things can be discovered very easily. Some things can be brute forced. You look at Airbnb and say, you know, how much, discovery was necessary with Airbnb, you know, in general, it was much more of an experience thing, right? It, they're not building a product. All they have to do is make it so they, they, that you trust them. It, it's not a technology solution, right? With Clickety, you know, one of the big questions we have is how much of the product needs to exist before it becomes compelling to you? I'm, I'm incredibly confident that at some point on this feature curve, the majority of people whose lives, whose jobs revolve around people they, this, the product becomes something they can't live without. But I'm actually not very confident where on that curve that happens. So it's a lot of discovery around like beginning to build, beginning to, 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 you know, test with users. It's like, okay, 
these three people found this feature compelling, but no one else found the collection of features compelling. It's like, okay, now one person is willing to pay. Now five people are willing to pay. Now 12 people. And that that thing is, you know, if you want to put a time limit on it, it's like, you know, how much time do you have? How much money do you have? I, I do think it's important to, rather than time constraints, to say, like, what are you trying to accomplish? If your goal is to affect a lot of people and you're not experiencing any growth, you're not experiencing any change, you know, the lack of change is is, is death. So... I would mostly focus on rate of change, rate of learning, rather than just simple time constraints. And you say you're a, a market guy. You try to understand the market first. A lot of founders, they start companies based on problems that they themselves have. Do you think it's, do you think there's value to, I'm sure there is value to both, but do you think it's important to work on your own problems or to sort of identify a problem and, and work on that? Which one do you think would be more successful? I think that really depends on the founders. There are some founders who are really good about uh, essentially just saying like, I see a market opportunity, I'm going to go build it. Um, I personally uh, really struggle to solve problems that I don't care about. Uh, I, I can't imagine spending a decade of my life working on a problem that wasn't emotionally important to me in some way that I couldn't identify with the people who experienced it. Um, and so there are, there are people who I really enjoy investing in these companies because they care about this problem. There's a, I'm a, an investor in a company, Milk Run here in Portland. And the founder is a former farmer and she's trying to directly connect consumers and farmers. And I am excited for that solution to exist. I'm excited for somebody to solve that problem, but I don't know anything about farming. I'm not personally like the amount of passion she's able to express when talking about helping farmers is a thousand times more than I could ever express in that area. Um, so like I can intellectually recognize the opportunity and recognize how much different it could be if this company succeeds but, you know, that intellectual difference is nowhere near the kind of amount of commitment I would need to spend 10 years of my life on it. So that's the kind of entrepreneur I am. But I know plenty of people who are different, right, who essentially are perfectly happy to and are actually incredibly good at seeing market opportunities and addressing them and making a ton of money. Um, and, you, you know, you ask them, how did you end up here? And it's like, eh, it looked like it would work. Do you care about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, making a lot of money and so it's working well. Um, so it's really just about what works for you as a founder, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. Along those lines of what works for you as a founder, I believe you have the experience of being of both, you know, solo founding a company and co-founding a company. Is that correct? No, both of my companies, I'm a solo founder. Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk about that. Talk about your preference as a solo or for being a solo founder, because like, I mean, the data points to, you know, co-founding companies being more successful if I'm if, if, right. Uh, kind of. And yet, if you look at the thing that causes failure in companies, then by far the largest source of failure is founder conflict. And so you're like, you know, you're both in some ways increasing the probability of success, but in some ways you're also increasing the probability of failure. So, you know, frankly, I didn't have a choice. I tried to find people who could have qualified as a co-founder for Clickety and just couldn't find anybody who might have fit, um, who was as interested in the problem as I am. And I have enough gumption and enough motivation on my own to, to take the leap. At Puppet, I, you know, I, I kind of, I did try to find co-founders at Puppet, although I, I wasn't really, I, I took it much more as like, a, I don't know, let's try this thing. I, you know, if you'd asked me, Luke, are you starting a software company? I'm not sure you would have really even thought about it that way. It's like, I'm solving this problem. I mean, I guess, you know, I was like, I think I can learn more failing to start a software company than I can successfully uh, getting an MBA, for example, is one of the ways I thought about it. But it was very much just like a learning experience and trying to tactically solve this problem that I had versus like, 
you know, what today would be, I'm, I'm doing a startup. I didn't think about it like that at all. Um, and so I wouldn't have looked very hard for a co-founder for that. Although I knew a ton of people who were working, who were interested in the same area and none of them agreed with me. None of them saw what I saw and none of them wanted to build what I wanted to build. At Clickety, I, I, I worked somewhat hard, but not incredibly hard because I'm not very employable. I'm hard to work with. I'm hard to, you know, I'm not a jerk, but I'm, I'm, I'm autistic and it's just, it's harder to interact with me. It's harder to see the same things I see. And so for me, at least having a co-founder would materially increase the risk of my business. And I'm an experienced enough entrepreneur that even when I wasn't experienced, I kind of needed to be running the business. And now I know like I would really, really struggle to be a company that I wasn't running. I think, you know, I, I have thought about it a lot because I, I'm tempted to hire a CEO to run these businesses so I can go to do the fun things, but I, I don't honestly don't think that will work that well. So I don't know, lots of questions. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, let's talk about competition. You know, uh, it, because a good idea should seem obvious, once you have an idea, should you worry that maybe you're late to the party? I actually think almost no good ideas are obvious. I think that if, ever, if everyone agrees with you, if you're at a very early stage and everyone agrees with you, then you should assume that you have 10 major competitors right then with few exceptions. Um, Clickety is actually one of those exceptions for me. Um, when I started Puppet, everyone thought it was dumb. Literally, people were insulting and laughing at me in the like tight-knit group of people that I was uh, hanging out with and kind of were all working on a similar problem. Um, not everyone, but a, but a decent, you know, a couple of people were were downright insulting about the the things I was trying to do, and no small part of my motivation in building Puppet was to um, kind of prove to them how wrong they were. And so, you know, if yeah, again, I would say if everyone agrees with you, then then either the problem is incredibly hard, uh, there, there's some kind of difficulty factor that you need to take into account, or there's a ton of other people working on the same problem at the same time, and it's very very rare that when a problem is that. A company that is successful, if you go back to the beginning, it's very rare that what they did looked like a good idea. And so in general, I would say, uh, worry more if everyone likes it than if no one likes it. That being said, just because everyone hates your idea doesn't mean it's any good, right? So, so, so don't confuse the other way either. You have to, this is going to sound weird, but not, not rely on the opinion of others. You have to come to your own conviction and you have to do that through talking to other people you have to do your research you have to go talk to prospective customers and users you have to go do you know go have 50 user interviews go talk to you know the people who would be the buyers if there's a difference between buyers and users so there's a lot of work to do that involves talking to other people but the work isn't i'm thinking about building this what do you think of that right like that that's not helpful you you should almost never trust the answer to a question that's that simplistic it's much more explain to me your problems you know i think you have this problem what does that problem look like what would the world look like if that problem didn't exist anymore you know how much would you be willing to pay to solve that problem how much of difference would it, would it have you know um, are there other examples have you tried to solve this in the problem in the past have you invested in this before in time or money what did that look like how well did it work all these kinds of things kind of begin to approach that uh, yeah i think i answered your question hopefully I think you did too. Yeah, it's important to, you know, get feedback, listen to it, but not necessarily follow it. L let's move on and talk about differentiation, uh, particularly when entering a crowded market. How do you know that you have a beachhead and that it's big enough to fend off competition? You don't and you can't and you never will. Uh, honestly, I'm not great at this stuff. I hate competition. I hate having to think about other people. I hate having to respond to competitors. I deal much better when I can just focus on my customers and their needs. But I also, as a capitalist and an economist, I hate monopolies. I think monopolies are a great source of, of evil and dysfunction and waste in this world. And so like 
from an outsider, I want monopolies to never exist. But I was, obviously, as a capitalist, monopolies are the, the funnest and the most profitable. And so, you know, for me, what, what I like to do is to pick a space that nobody cares about. Um, I actually pointedly try to look for the biggest disconnect between potential value and uh, how much people care about a space. Um, and so I'm looking for those neglected markets. I'm looking for the neglected users, people who could generate a ton of value but are not respected. Um, and in most cases, you, know, you look at, at, at Puppet, you know, we were a company by sysadmins for sysadmins. And prior to that, companies were not, companies run by sysadmins were not trusted. You know, we would trust a business person to build software for, for IT, but we wouldn't trust an IT person to build software for IT. And after Puppet, you know, I, I obviously wasn't the only reason why, but a big part of what we did was we trained the market that sysadmins are great customers and you should trust sysadmins to build software for other sysadmins. And that, that training, you know, kind of shifted what was considered to be reasonable. And one of the reasons I'm not building software in what is now the, the DevOps space today is because everyone agrees it's a good idea and I'm no longer interested in it, right? There's a bunch of other people who are motivated to solve those people's problems. And suddenly the problems of a DevOps person, you're not worried about the first problem. You're worried about the 19th problem that person has. And I'm just not interested in their 19th problem. I'm interested in like the first big, painful, miserable, horrible problem. Um, but like once you've solved that one and the next one and the next one and the next one, I'm like, eh, this is kind of boring now. There's somebody else who's suffering way more than this person is. And I could go build a product for them and help them much more and make them much happier um, and ho hopefully have less competition and make more money. Let's talk about a recipe for success. You know, lots of people, especially those listening to this podcast, I imagine, would like to start a startup and want to find success doing it. Why do you think people who try to find startup ideas and, and you know, make that first million, uh, why do you think, do you think they're successful? And if not, why do you think they fail so miserably? Well, obviously, lots of people are successful. There are, um, you know, at least in this country, being an entrepreneur is still one of the best ways to uh, materially, materially change your net worth. And obviously, the people who do really well do, you know, it's a, it's a very clear power law curve. The, the Bezoses and the Zuckerbergs of the world have done quite well. Although, at least in Zuckerberg's case, he, you know, he wandered into it. He didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. He uh, set out to make a site that rated girls on the internet and accidentally became one of the richest people in the world. But once he got the tiger by the tail, he, he knew what to do. Whereas Bezos is one of the few, in my opinion, one of the few counterexamples of somebody who very intentionally set out to become, to, to do something incredibly large and uh, pursued it assiduously. I, I think a lot of people who end up not being successful, the thing is there are no answers, right? There is no one thing. Anybody who tells you that they have the answer is lying to you. Probably they're lying to you because they're selling something to you. There is no one thing that works for everybody. And if it worked for everybody, then it would stop working for everybody. Like we live in a capitalist market. And so if, if I come up with a competitive advantage that like everyone who does this thing will succeed and everyone who doesn't do this thing will lose, guess what? Relatively promptly, everyone will do that thing. And now the list of people who don't do the things that work every time goes to almost nil. And the list of people who do that thing that works every time goes to almost 100%. Well, now it's like, okay, well, now I need a new competitive advantage. I need a new secret trick. And, you know, it's like the old, uh, the old joke about medicine, you know, what they call a natural medicine that works medicine. It's like, there's a set of tricks that work in entrepreneurship and everyone does a hundred percent of them. And there's a set of tricks that, you know, don't work consistently. And it's really hard to separate the ones that work from the ones that don't. And of course, there's somebody out there who's happy to sell you, you know, blitzscaling as the only thing you should ever do, or you've got to do enterprise sales, or you've got to do OKRs, or you've got to have this, you know, culture deck, or you've got to be in Silicon Valley or any of those things. It's like, well, you know, show me that 
having any significant correlation to success? The answer is like, oh, well, I, I can't really do that, can I? So, you know, the fundamental problem is this is incredibly hard. Most startups fail. And a huge part of why startups fail is because it's, it's just really hard. It's hard to invent something. It's hard to build something. It's hard to grow, grow a company. It's hard to convince somebody to part with their hard-earned money. It's hard to build a product that people can use to solve their problem. It's hard to understand other people's problems well enough to solve their problem. All this stuff is just incredibly hard. And so you shouldn't be surprised if you fail at hard things. You know, you look at uh, the majority of the, the stories of most inventions very, very rarely start with, I had an idea, I built it, I became famous, <laughs> right? You look at like Alexander Graham Bell or, you know, we all know the story of Edison failing a thousand times, you know, on the way to inventing the light bulb or inventing the, the version of the light bulb that he ran because obviously there were light bulbs before his work, but he came up with a, a very good version of it. You know, are you willing to fail a thousand times on your way to solving this problem, right? You know, those kinds of questions matter a lot. Most people who would like to be entrepreneurs, most people who should be entrepreneurs, frankly, don't have the luxury. They've got to feed their families. They've got to take care of a sick mother. They've got to, you know, they can't afford to get near the edge of bankruptcy because their life wouldn't tolerate that kind of uncertainty for various reasons. So, you know, psychologically, maybe they're not in a place where they can tolerate that. And so a lot of the people who want to be entrepreneurs, frankly, shouldn't be. They should go get a career in finance. So they should, you know, a lot of them are now go become an executive at Facebook and get paid incredibly well to do, frankly, nothing of importance because you're an executive at a huge company and you don't actually have an impact on, on the world mostly. So the people who, you know, yeah, the people who are the best entrepreneurs are the people who, you know, immigrants in this country start more companies than anybody else. Why? Because white people in America won't hire you to do something important. They won't pay you enough money to have a great job. And so you're like, screw it, I can do it myself. And those people, they have to be entrepreneurs. And they don't fail very often because they can't afford to fail. Now, in many cases, there's a ceiling to how big their company can get. They won't take the risks that might result in 100x growth over the course of a few years. But, you know, their company succeeds and they have wealth to pass on to their kids and they can send their kids to a good college and stuff like that. And, you know, for them, that's, to me, that's, that's a fantastic success. So in order to, in order to be successful as a startup, you know, like you mentioned, it's not, I had an idea, I built it, I was successful. It often involves repeated failures and, and kind of learning from those mistakes, but what kind of mistakes uh, kill startups that, that you just can't come back from? Um, certainly brand mistakes, right? Things where um, everyone ceases to respect you. Everyone uh, ceases to trust you. Those kinds of mistakes are incredibly hard to come back from. You know, obviously the most obvious way to kill your startup is to run out of money. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of raising a ton of money, even though I did at my last company. No small part of why I, I would prefer not to raise a ton of money the next time is because I did last time. Although I think, the, you know, if clickety hits, if, if, if it succeeds in the way that I know it can, now whether it will, I don't know. But if it does, the odds are we will raise a lot of money. Um, you know, but right now we don't have a ton of money in the bank. And that's my biggest risk is like, will I have enough money to, to bat tomorrow, right? Will I have enough money to continue doing rounds? Um, so, you know, running out of money is the classic way to kill your company, um, certainly. Founder conflict, is my understanding, is a big part of it. And, and that, I think, mostly comes down to we had different, we had different visions. I, I do a lot of advising. And one time, one of the things I do a lot with founders when I meet with them the first time is just I ask them a ton of questions. Help me understand your business. Help me understand your why. Help me understand what problem you're trying to solve. Why are you trying to solve this problem? Why do you care enough about this problem to spend five years, five years of your life on this? It's, it's stupid. It's insane of you to be this motivated to do anything, much less this particular problem. Walk, walk me through it. Explain it. 
And one time I was with this couple who were these two women who were starting a company together and I want, and I asked them all these questions and I sent a follow-up note the next week saying, you know, Hey, how's it going? You know, what, you know, what, what do you think about your next steps? And they said, actually, we decided to split up because in talking through the answers with you, we realized we were actually not trying to build the same company. And it's not very common that somebody will walk them through that kind of challenge, right? Very few people get challenged in a way that I try to challenge founders. And, you know, it, it sucks to have found a nice split up this founding team, but it's way better to discover that before you've raised money, before you've built a product, before you've gone to market, before you've picked a name, than it is to discover after all those things, right? When you've got employees and customers who you need to keep happy. So I don't know what the biggest, biggest failures are, but certainly those are, those are popular ones. That's a good list. If you're going to fail, it's better to do it fast, right? So running out of money is one way to kill your startup. Another way is launching too slowly. It's probably killed 100 times more startups than launching too fast. Do you think it's possible to launch your startup too fast? You know, it's interesting because clearly the market thinks that, right? Like how many companies do private betas now? I find it very strange. I mean, we're in a private beta and I'm really frustrated and I want to get out of private beta as fast as possible. I want to go into like, you know, public beta. I think there's a story in the market that everyone is like launch as fast as possible. But the reality is almost no one actually does this or, you know, people launch in a way that's like, you know, we can have five users, but we can't have 5,000 or 5 million users. So I think people are still pretty unwilling to fail in public. And I think the experience of failing in public is still as unpleasant as it always was. Um, and, and again, like I said, one of the things that one of the ways to kill your business is to cause people to not trust you anymore. So for our case, if I launched early and then people discovered a massive security vulnerability, you know, in our product, we've got, a, we've got some of your most important data. We've got your email, the actual contents of your email in most cases. If you conclude that you can't be, I can't be trusted with your private data, you know, maybe you never trust me again, right? Maybe, you know, I have a mistake catastrophic enough. The only reason I'm known is because of that problem. So I, I absolutely, for some cases, I absolutely do believe that you can be launched, that you can launch too early. I frankly don't really believe in launches. I think launches as a concept are uh, kind of obsolete. I believe in putting your product out there and figuring out if people can use it. And I believe in iteration and launching is kind of antithetical to iteration. So if your goal is iteration and learning, then focus less on the launch and focus more on, you know, the iteration and each step and the thing you changed from last time and the thing you learned this time and what problem you're trying to solve this week versus last week and stuff like that. That is good advice. Why do you think startups prosper in some places and maybe not others? Well, obviously money is a big part of it, right? In general, I don't think the people who live in Silicon Valley are fundamentally different than the people who live in other places. There is some aspect of difference, right? The people who are drawn to the jobs you get in Silicon Valley are different than the people who are drawn to the jobs you get, you know, working the ski lifts in Colorado, for example. The motivation of somebody who wants to be a, a ski bum for the winter is different than the motivation of somebody who, you know, wants to get a job, an early career job at Facebook. But, you know, I, I don't believe most of them are more risk takers than other things. I think the the person who would have been a finance jockey 15, 20 years ago is now going to go and try to become a programmer at, at Facebook or Google because you get, you know, those are the jobs that pay the best. Like, why wouldn't you do that? You know, but the m money is a great accelerant. And in most cases, you have to be near the money to raise it. You had to be in the, in the Bay Area to raise money from the Bay Area. You have to be in, in New York to raise money from New York. And it's only in the last 10 years or so that, you know, like 70% of the money was in the Bay Area until the last decade or so. And New York has gotten much bigger and London has gotten a lot bigger. Um, but they still all pale in comparison. You know, there, I was just on a 
call with a bunch of angel investors right before this. And, you know, one of the people was saying, I'm, I'm confident that's all gone, right? Like it's no longer a constraint. You can be anywhere. And, you know, I, I, I think we probably went from the discount if you weren't near money was 90% and now the discount is 30 or 40%. So I think a huge portion of it's money. I think also a huge portion, frankly, is, and I discounted this when I was, because I'm in Portland, I'm an hour and a half away from the Bay Area by, by plane. And I discounted the value of experience in executives. And I would say like for the people on the ground, the individual employees, um, having them having experience as an, as a, at a startup, I don't think is super important. I think you can get frontline employees who are incredibly good, pretty literally anywhere. But, you know, building my company in Oregon, the number of VPs of marketing who had built a company from, you know, a million in revenue to 10 million in revenue was like three. <laughs> and so, you know, if you don't have access, and I mean in the whole state of Oregon, right? And if you don't, if that, if those three people aren't somebody who you like, and when I say I think it was three, it might have actually been one. I only think it was three, right? And especially to go from 10 to 50 and for 50 to 150, right? So if you don't have access to that one person, and you think about like being an executive is a skill set, right? So you wouldn't want engineers who'd never been an engineer before. You want to hire an experienced engineer. So you might be a great marketer, but if you're not a great marketing leader, then you're learning leadership for the first time. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have the opportunity to do that. And I'm not saying no startup should ever hire somebody who doesn't have experience. But if you look up and you're like, okay, I've got a first time VP of marketing. I've got a first time VP of engineering. I got a first time VP of finance and I've got a first time VP of whatever. You're like, okay, that's too much risk, right? And, and I discounted how much of a difference leadership experience makes. Um, and and the thing that's different about, you know, everyone has, like, this is all a definitions issue. You might not use my definition, but growth is the thing that made my job hard at Puppet. Puppet. Everything else we did, if you just said, everything else is exactly the same, but next year you get to have the same number of employees and you get to make the same amount of revenue as you did this year, my job would have become trivial, like literally suddenly easy. But you know, doubling your employees every year consumes a third to half your time easily. Uh, doubling your revenue every year is an incredible amount of stress. Um, it's just incredibly hard. N nothing that worked yesterday works tomorrow. Or, or, you know, on a given day, something that worked perfectly no longer works. So every single day you're changing something that you spent crap tons of money and time getting to the point where it worked. And you're like, ah, oh, finally it worked. I can stop paying attention to this for a week. And then it immediately stops working again. So that's incredibly hard. And people who have never experienced growth and some of it's like growth mindset and all that kind of stuff. And, and I believe that, um, but some of it too is just like the world of growth is different than the world of not growth. You can be a great VP of marketing at a company that, that grew 5% a year. And it might be that your skills are literally irrelevant at a company that, that doubles every year or triples every year. And that kind of experience I think does matter a lot. So as you look around in your market and say, you know, if my goal is to go from $100,000 in revenue to $100 million in revenue in the case of five or seven or 10 years, or I'm supposed to say three years by now, but let's be serious about most things, right? Are there people around me who have done anything that remotely resembles that? And can I get access to those people, right? Can I find those people? And the reason why Clickety is remote first company and was before the pandemic ever happened is I didn't want to try to only pull from the Portland executive pool anymore. Let's keep on keep on with the theme of growth. You know, it is the essential thing that all startups are after. How fast does a company have to be growing to still be considered a startup? Do you think? I think that's all. The stuff is silly. I, I think the market has this tendency towards we start the startup world is a power law distribution. 
the biggest companies, the, the, the most successful, the richest, the fastest growing companies are dramatically bigger and dramatically faster and dramatically more worth more money than the others. And yet we talk about it like it's a normal distribution, right? We say the, the best ones and we, we think, oh, the fat part of the bell curve, right? Our brains think in terms of normal distributions and the words we use all sound like normal distributions. But the reality is this is all a power law curve and we're just not good at thinking or talking about power law curves. So I think there's just a fundamental disconnect and I think it makes us all sound frankly dumb. And I just, I, it just, it frustrates me. It's just like all this startup advice I hear, all the like what the market does, what people do implies things that, that just aren't true because what you actually mean is, I mean, like, here's an example. You've heard of every single entrepreneur who got to be, who started a company before the age of 20 and became a billionaire. You've heard of every single one of them. You know them by name. And yet we have this stereotype that startups are, are, are the, the work of the young. They're not. In fact, you know of every one of them because there are so few of them. In practice, like the average age of an entrepreneur is 45, right? But that's not interesting. And you, you absolutely cannot name all the people who became billionaires after the age of 45 because there's so damn many of them relative to the rest. And, and so the way we talk about this, I, I think even the framing of that question implies there's this average way of thinking about things. An average is a normal distribution. There is no average of a power law curve. There's absolutely none. So, and if you look at the companies who did the best, who grew the biggest, who were the fastest, they're so anomalous, they're so weird, they're so different, they're so strange that you, you can't really compare them, right? Like what did Amazon do differently? Like how can, how can the next company copy Amazon? It's inconceivable. How can the next company copy Microsoft? It's inconceivable. How can the next company copy Facebook? It's, it's inconceivable, right? In no small part because we have defenses against Facebook now, right? The next, the, the next Facebook won't be allowed to buy their, their two or three biggest competitors like Facebook was. But there are other things too that just like it, it doesn't work the same way. And in no small part, Facebook exists. And therefore, the next Facebook doesn't get to start in a world where Facebook doesn't already exist. And all those things matter, right? The next Amazon doesn't get to exist in a world where Amazon doesn't exist. So I don't know. When you talk about growth, you know, where on that power law curve does do you cease being a startup? Um, for me, when you cease waking up every day, fearing your company won't exist tomorrow, that's when you stop being a startup. And it has nothing to do with growth, right? My company, Clickety, we're not growing. We have one paying user. We're not growing at all. We, I, I haven't hired a person. I hired one person in February. I hadn't hired a person in almost a year before that. We're not growing. But if you were to come to me and say that we're not a startup, I would say you're insane, right? Because our probability of not being here in six months is quite high. There was a point at Puppet where... I remember it was around Christmas one year where I realized that I was confident we as a company were still going to be there, that not just the next quarter, but in a year and not just be there, but like we had accomplished enough that we were, there was no chance we were going to pop like a bubble and just disappear. That was when for me, we ceased being a startup. Um, you keep mentioning power law curves and uh, you know, you're right. Uh, everyone is familiar with a normal distribution and a bell curve. I'm actually sitting here scratching my head, wondering what that looks like. Could you just describe real quick uh, what a power law curve looks like for maybe the listener that's in their car and can't Google it right now? Yeah. So envision a, like a standard chart, you know, your X and your Y and on the left of the chart is a curve that essentially goes up to infinity against that left axis. And then on the right of the chart is another curve that goes up to infinity and it like never quite touches the axis. It, 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 it's called asymptotically approaches the axis. So you think about billion, you think about rich people, 
right? We, we, we always talk about the 1%. Well, the 1% aren't actually that rich, relatively speaking. The people who are really, really rich, you go, if you go from 1%, these people are worth about $10 million. And then you go from the 1% to the 0.1%. And these people are now worth 10, you know, 10 times as much. They're worth $100 million, right? So you, you went, you know, one-tenth as many people are worth 10 times as many. So that's an exponential curve. And then you go from the 0.1% to the 0.01%. These people aren't worth $100 million. They're worth you know, a billion dollars, $5 billion. You know, the reality is there's a, there's about, what is it? I can't remember if it's in the U S or worldwide, there's 3000 billionaires in the world. And you think about that and you're like, that's kind of not that many considering how many billionaires most of us can name, right? Most of us could probably on the drop of a hat name, I don't know, 10, 20 billionaires, right? You got your Gates and your Bezos and your Zuckerbergs and stuff like that. There are a surprising number of them are pretty famous. So there are shockingly few of these people out there. And that's whether you count the the heads of state as billionaires, right? People like Putin, who putatively, you know, people have said is worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars, right? Like, you know, those are the things that maybe we don't, we don't think of them that way because they're political leaders or whatever. And so the people at the very left are worth so much more. Whereas in a normal distribution, you've got the people in the middle are on average, everyone's worth about average. And the best way of, <laughs> the best way of, of, of demonstrating this is if Bill Gates walks into the room, if I'm the only person in a room and Bill Gates walks in, then on average, I've become worth tens of billions of dollars. Right. And so if the way to look at the distribution of wealth there is average, then that's not at all useful. It's not, it's not helpful. Right. So you take a room with me and Bill Gates in it and it's like, okay, there's this person over here who's one of the richest people who's ever lived and still has the majority of his money. And then this person over here is way down on the curve. And you start filling in more people. Okay, let's add somebody who works cleaning hotel rooms. Now that person's even further down the curve from me. Now let's add somebody who is a banker, Goldman Sachs, and they're going to be in between me and Bill Gates. But the curve isn't a straight line, right? It's not like it goes a straight line from Bill Gates to the person who works at hotel rooms. It falls off incredibly steeply from Bill Gates because there's like five people or seven people who are worth, you know, $100 billion or more. In the whole world, there's like seven people, right? And then from there, the, the people who are worth not 100, but $10 billion, there's, you know, maybe there's 100 of those. And so now that's, this, the curve falls even more steeply. And, and then as you get to some point, it kind of flattens out. And now you've got an ungodly number of people who are worth $0, right? In America, the average African-American, the average net worth of an African-American is, is measured in single dollars. It's like $7 or $100 or something like that. Right. So now you've got 14% of the country and not literally, but the, on average, there's like huge collection of people who are worth functionally nothing. And they're on this far right side of the curve where there's a huge number of them. The total net worth is quite small. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, how you should design your startup to grow fast? I know we're kind of talking about uh, a lot of this stuff is. Lots of ways of, of interpreting the question. Do you mean more like. Um, what kinds of startups grow fast or what kinds of, how should I structure my organization? Like, wh what do you mean? Yeah, I'd say the, the latter. How would you structure it? I think for me, the most important thing is don't get attached. Don't become emotionally attached to any of your answers. If there's anything in your business that you, you're like, we can do anything we want as long as we do X, that X becomes a constraint. And every, every constraint you add to your business you know, it may, that constraint may not affect you, right? You may say to yourself, look, we can do anything we want as long as my business name is under five letters. Like that might not matter, right? It might be that having a five letter business name will never impact you as a company. But there's a surprising number of things that you can become kind of mentally, spiritually, and emotionally committed to that end up, you have to choose between growth and that thing. And you have to be willing to give up that thing or not. And it's very hard in the moment to see those. It's very hard in general to see those, especially if in your brain, you've committed to not changing that. 
Because once you have a thing you've committed to not changing, it becomes something you don't notice anymore, right? You, you, you run into a problem and you're like, of the things I could change, what, what can I fix? But you don't pronounce the, of the things I'm willing to change, right? You just like, your brain is like, you know, there's all this stuff. Um, but you, you don't ask yourself like, you know, what if I could change gravity, right? We all know you can't change gravity. It's not one of the options. What if I modified the speed of light? How would that affect me? Well, that's not one of the things you can change. What if I was willing to hire people outside the United States? Well, I'm not willing to hire people outside the United States. Okay, well, maybe that's one of the constraints in your business, right? What if I was willing to move with the city I lived in? What if I was willing to sell directly to people? What if I was willing to hire field sales? What if I was willing to advertise in this way? What if I was willing, like, these are all things that if you if you consider them to be fixed, then you can't, you often find that some of these things are, are, are problematic. And this isn't quite the same thing as the fixed versus growth mindset. A fixed is somebody who believes things can't change, right? Whereas this is more about not allowing con- artificial constraints to, to arrive in your business. To me, that's about the only thing, but, but it turns out not being emotionally attached to the answers you already have is fantastically hard. It, it really is. I mean, it's the number of people I've met who can pick an answer, use that answer to solve their problems, and then let go of that answer without, without mourning the loss, without fighting to keep it in place. It's very small. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, not taking too much money as a startup. How much VC money should you take, do you think? Exactly the right amount. No less, no more. I mean, it's, it's hard. So what I would say is you should take the smallest amount you can without putting your business at risk. And the two things that put your business at risk are essentially I'm going to run out of money or I don't have enough money to compete. You know, Puppet ended up raising a lot of money because our competitor raised a lot of money and we were always chasing the money they raised. And if we were in the market, you know, I, I know not a, a, quite a few companies, some of which I you know, was on the board of and things like that, ended up it's like, look, my competitor raised 10 times as much money as I did. And there's just, you know, I'm not saying you can't defeat a competitor who has 10 times or 100 times the money you have. Boy, howdy, is it unlikely, though? It's just really hard, right? They're going to have a lot more people. They're going to have a lot more product. They're going to have a lot more features. They're going to have a lot more salespeople. They're going to have a lot more marketing dollars. So what I push founders on as they think about how much money to raise is what are the things driving you to need the money, right? If you could grow your business at one-tenth as fast as you were thinking about it, what would cause you to fail in that case? And if the answer is, I would still be fine. It would just take a longer time. Then I think in most cases, you should say, like, don't raise as much money. Don't focus on growth unless you need to focus on growth. And I was working with fun, one, one group of founders who said, you know, we're in a land grab. We've got to grow fast because we're in a land grab. And I was like, so point to me the competitor who's taking your customers if you don't take them. And they were like, well, there, there aren't any. I mean, there is no other solution. If you don't pick our stuff, then there's nothing else out there. I was like, then you're not in a land grab, right? You might want to still grow fast, but you know, your growth should become because your product is so great. People can't live without it. And they tell all of their friends and they bring it to all of their other coworkers. Um, that's not a land grab. You know, that's something completely different. And so if you've got competitive pressure, raising extra money so that you can grow faster so that you can be the one with the big war chest and your competitor isn't makes a ton of sense. At Clickety, for example, I raised enough capital that with a small team, I could get two years of runway because I was pretty confident that I didn't want to be raising in the middle of a presidential year. I obviously did not predict the pandemic, but I did predict that the last year was going to be complicated. And investors are incredibly swarm based, right? All the investors are investing like crazy right now, but in six months or a year, you know, if we get one bad IPO and the investors start to believe that the IPO pipeline is shut down, suddenly everybody could stop writing checks. 
And it just happened super fast. And I didn't want to be in a place where I had to raise money in the middle of a presidential year. So, you know, raising enough money that you can do the work you need to do and you don't have to raise in the middle of your experiments, in the middle of your hard problems is, uh, I think it's pretty important. And so the, the, those, that's kind of the, the bookends that I think about it. But, um, but not, again, none of those are perfect answers, right? It might be that your world competition isn't the answer. And what you need is, you know, we're doing hard tech and we need enough money to, raise, to do the hard tech. You know, but I would say like, you should never raise more than kind of five, $10 million without having a product in market. You know, and the perfect example of that is what, what was the, um, the AR glasses company that raised whatever a billion dollars or $2 billion and never had a product in market. Like that's just insane. In my opinion, you know, the only exceptions to that are somebody, if, if you're doing biotech, if you're doing pharma and you spend a billion dollars on a medicine, like that's not crazy because if that works, you know, a billion dollars is probably too much, but you know, some amount of money on that, that's the like hits kind of business that's completely different than a technology business. But if you're in technology and you've raised $5 million and your product isn't in market, in my opinion, like you're insane and you're probably not going to succeed. Certainly if you've raised a hundred million dollars and your product's not in market, um, or if you've spent a hundred million dollars, right? And maybe if you've raised it, okay, that's one thing, but if you've spent it and your product is still not in market, you don't have any of the customer validation. And I, I just, I can't, I can't believe your product would ever succeed. All right. That's a, that's a great thought. Uh, last question. You've, you kind of taught me a lot in this interview. Do you have any advice for startup founders and entrepreneurs that maybe we didn't touch on that I didn't ask about uh, in this interview that you'd like to share? Man, I have a, I have a ton of advice. I, I do it. I don't do as much writing these days, but I have a ton of writing at LukeKnees.com. Um, where I've got a decent amount of advice and thoughts there. Um, so I've tried, to, I've tried to capture the things that I believe that most people, I think, don't believe. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I seem to believe that most people don't is that you don't learn much from failure. There are, uh, I, I think learning is incredibly important. Always have a, always have a learning edge um, and always have a place where you're trying to get better and have a way that you can do that whether it's learning from people or learn from books some people don't learn from books i do really well at learning from books most books only have one thing to teach you so if you learn anything from a business book you can put it down you've kind of plumbed its depths usually but this idea one of the things you'll hear people say all the time is i learn more from failure than success and i just think that's not true <laughs> it's not in fact i so think it's not true i don't even think people who say it believe it you know and the best example to me is if you had a choice between you gotta go build a garage and you have a choice between somebody who's tried to build 10 garages and has failed to build any garages and a choice and somebody who's tried to build 10 garages and every single time has built the garage they tried to build like who would you hire a hundred percent of us would, would hire the person who has successfully built 10 garages right zero percent of us would hire the person who's never succeeded so none of us believe we more, learn more from from failure than success we actually all know that you learn more from, from success than failure and so as you think about learning and as you think about who should i be emulating think about whose successes am I trying to copy, right? What kinds of success should I be learning from? And if there's somebody out there who talks a lot about how you should build your business, but they've only built businesses that are unlike the business you want to build, then they may not have to have anything to teach you. So make sure that when you're learning, you're learning from people who have done things that, that you want to do, who have done things the way that you want to do them. And it's not just a question of, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg did it and therefore I should listen to Mark Zuckerberg. I don't want to build a social media company. I don't, I don't want to rate girls on the internet. I frankly don't want to, you know, risk bringing down Western civilization. So I don't think Mark Zuckerberg has anything to teach me, at least not very much. You know, maybe it does in the, for, in the area of hiring and stuff like that. But in most of the cases, there's nothing about Mark's business that really looks like my business. And so it's, it's kind of like it's not just 
finding places to learn. It's figuring out who you're learning from and whether what they have to teach you is related to the problems that you have. And did they succeed in those places, right? Don't don't learn in the places where people failed. Learn in the places where people succeeded and make sure that the successes they have match the successes you want to have. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, why don't you plug the blog one more time and uh, tell us the best way to, to reach you and uh, learn more about Clickety. Yeah, so the blog is lukekinese.com, K-A-N-I-E-S. If you just search for Luke Kinese, they're, they're, I'm the only one out there. Clickety as a, is at clickety.app and you can sign up for a wait list right now. And most people don't end up waiting on it for very long right now. And uh, I'm on, on the internet. The best way to reach me is L on Twitter. All right, Luke Canise. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to end the show there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Luke, thanks for joining the show today. I appreciate your time and thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Oleg. Oh,